I always think to myself when we sing these songs, whether it's uh, the one we just sang or even the New City Catechism song for the kids, that we need time and space to reflect on and even discuss these deep truths about God and His Word. And so we're going to take some time with another one of those truths this morning together as we open up God's Word. But before we do that, please join me in a word of prayer. Father God, we come to you because of the name of Jesus, because of who he was, who he is, and what he has done. And we come not in our own strength or wisdom, but through the Holy Spirit who intercedes on our behalf, who has led us here together this morning, and who continues to lead your people, your church, and your kingdom here on earth. In Jesus' name we pray, Lord. We ask that you would open up uh, your word to us and speak your truth to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, uh, we're beginning a new sermon series, Encountering God, or more fully Encountering the Living God, but we couldn't cram all that onto a slide. How do we do that? How do we encounter the living God? Where does it happen? When does it happen? I want to start this morning in this series with the premise, the, the idea that humans are made for relationships with other people and relationships with God. We know and experience on a daily basis what it means to have relationships with other people. Some of our relationships are good, some are bad. Some of our relationships are strong and they can withstand anything. Some of our relationships are weak. We know all types. But how do we have a relationship with the living God? How do we do what this sermon series is about? How do we encounter, meet God? My sense from our congregation, from you and from me, is that we might try or think of encountering God the same way as these people in the picture behind me. That we might sit around and leave an empty chair and think and hope and pray. We might wonder where God is and hope that he is there or hope that he is near us, but never have much confidence or, expect or, or never have much confidence or trust that he actually is. Maybe we think that it's up to us to initiate a relationship with God. After all, many things in our lives are just up to us. Especially as adults, many things depend on our choice and on our decision. But this picture of encountering God that we have in our minds and that perhaps, is, that perhaps is in our minds and that is on the screen behind me is very different than last week's image. If you remember last week, I used the image of Jesus powerfully revealing himself to Mary when she wasn't even ready for him. And so today we're going to take just a little bit of extra time to lay the groundwork for this sermon series and wonder together what it means to encounter God. I want to suggest that all of us are comfortable having and beginning relationships on our own terms. We're comfortable when we are the ones who initiate. But we experience, even in our own congregation, that and as we become a more multicultural church, that not all of us are comfortable with the same kinds of relationships. Some people, uh, with some of us, we want a more formal relationship. Others of us want a more informal relationship. 
Some of us prefer a high power distance. We trust our leaders and we don't need an intimate relationship with them. Some of us prefer a low power distance. We want to go up to our leaders and give them a piece of our mind. Some of us want to know and enjoy many people in a surface level or momentary way. Others of us want to only know a few people, but know them very deeply and uh, meaningfully for long periods of time. Our ways of being comfortable with one another and being in relationship together are different, but we all like it our own way. When God meets us, God doesn't ask us or allow us to dictate the terms of our relationship with him. God doesn't wait for us and then decide to encounter us or to meet with us in the way, only in the way that we like. Just as a loving parent would, God sets the terms for the relationship with his children, with all of us. He knows what we need and he cares for us. He gives us what we need, even if it's not always what we want. And so this morning I want to show, using several different pictures from the Bible, how the Bible shows God's relationship with people, with humanity, and how God breaks into everyday life. And I want to invite you to wonder how God invites you to encounter him. And so we're going to start uh, just at and actually after the Easter story. There's a couple of verses here at the, toward the end of Matthew's gospel. It starts with the Good Friday story of Jesus' crucifixion, but then very quickly moves on. So Jesus, when he was on the cross, when he had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies, excuse me, the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out from the tombs after Jesus' resurrection, and they went into the holy city. They appeared to many people. Now, later, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and they exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there, watching, standing from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and also the mother of Zebedee's sons. So far the reading of God's word. Now in my experience, most churches avoid Matthew's gospel version of Jesus' crucifixion. There's four gospels, four versions, four stories of what happened at Easter, And Matthew's gospel is the one that's used the least. I think because it seems the most foreign, the most removed or strange to us. But Matthew's gospel is also very helpful to us when when we're wondering about what it means to encounter God. Because Matthew's purpose in writing the whole of his gospel was to show the Jews that Jesus was the chosen one from God. Jesus was the Messiah that they had been waiting for. Put another way, Matthew wanted to show the Jews that God was inviting all people to encounter God through Jesus, God's Son. Until this point, until Jesus came, the Jews had for thousands of years 
encountered God in and at the temple in Jerusalem. That was the only place and the only time they encountered God. If you think that trying to implement our church's vision is difficult, imagine Jesus' work. Jesus had to try to change and address and overcome 2,000 years of tradition and expectation. The belief that God could only be found in one place, and even then only met by a few people a few times a year. God's people had literally put God in a box, in a box they called the temple, and they were not eager to let him out. The temple was supposed to be God's house or God's dwelling place on earth. It was a place where, not just where God lived, but also where the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, met the kingdoms of this world. As I said, there's always tension when people encounter God. This was true even in the Old Testament. The kingdoms of Israel and Judah were comfortable limiting God to the place where they wanted to meet him and in the way that they wanted to meet him. Perhaps not so different from us. But in our text for today, in Matthew chapter 27, God did what God always does. God broke out, broke their boxes and made clear that his relationship with all people would happen on his terms and that he would not be limited by other people's choice no matter how long it took. Matthew is the only gospel writer who makes a big deal of the temple curtain being torn in two. And so this morning I want to spend a little bit of time explaining and reminding what the history and significance of that temple was for the Israelites. The temple that Jesus walked into during his life and ministry that you can see behind me there, that temple was called Herod's Temple. And you can see that it's a significant structure. Herod built it for the Jews after they returned from Babylon in exile. Before Herod's Temple was Solomon's Temple. It was a temple that Solomon built. Solomon's Temple was looted and then destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon when Israel and Judah were conquered and carried into exile there. Before Solomon built the temple, the Israelites carried around the tabernacle, a huge tent-like building, and I'm behind. This tent was where God, uh, God, that God instructed Moses to build after God led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And before the Israelites had a tabernacle, even before Israel lived, before Jacob was born, God met his people in another box, another place, a garden called Eden. This is the garden that we talked about last week during the Easter service. So God has always met his people at specific times in specific places and specific ways. In between the second temple and the first temple, in between the tabernacle and Eden, God still encountered his people and led them. God was never limited to those spaces. But ever since Adam and Eve sinned in Eden, God has always been separated from his people in some ways. Or maybe more accurately, God's people have always been separated from God. You see, it wasn't God who left, who sinned, who rebelled. It was humanity. First in the tabernacle, then in the temple, humanity was separated from God. And it was 
separated by this beautiful curtain, this curtain that was torn at Jesus' crucifixion, this beautiful ornate curtain that physically separated God, God's people from God. The temple curtain was beautiful and ornate. It went from wall to wall, completely separating God in the most holy place from the rest of the temple and, by extension, the rest of uh, the temple courts, the city, and beyond. The historian in 2 Chronicles tells us how Solomon made the curtain out of blue and purple and crimson, a red yarn, and fine linens, and he worked angels into it. This was God's house on earth, built by people, the box that they put him in. And behind this curtain was the Ark of the Covenant, which is sometimes called the mercy seat or the judgment seat of God. It was the place where God sat among his people. But always that curtain separated God's people from God. There was always some distance. God's presence was too much for people to take in. Even though God's presence filled the temple and the tabernacle, even though the temple was like God's embassy, God's kingdom coming to the kingdoms of earth, this wasn't God's limit. It was God's way of entering into relationship with his people so that they could encounter him in a way that was possible for them. The Old Testament tells many stories of people encountering God and encountering God's presence and being overwhelmed. The first one goes all the way back to Genesis. After Adam and Eve sin, the next time that they encounter God, they run away from him. They hide, they flee, they're ashamed. Later in the time of David, the Ark of the Covenant is being God's God's Mercy seat is being transported from where it was in storage back to the temple in Jerusalem. And somebody, or to the tabernacle, excuse me, and somebody it's, it's, hits a bump and it almost falls and somebody reaches out and, and touches it in order to steady it and keep it from falling. And the person dies immediately. Another story tells us how Moses, the leader of the Israelites, maybe the most holy and humble man, asked God if he could see God face to face in Exodus 33. Moses says to God, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one can see my face and live. Ever since sin, seeing, meeting, and encountering God face-to-face was too much for any person. So God always limited himself out of care for his people. We live in a time far removed from that time, and so we might rightly wonder, why? Why is this the case? Why can no one see God and live? Why are people separated from God's presence? Well, the Garden of Eden, as I said earlier, was that first temple. It was the sanctuary in the world that God created, the place where heaven came to earth. It was beautiful and full of light and fruit and good things. Best of all, it was full of God's presence, full of God's glory. God's people walked and talked with him there. The tabernacle and the temple built after were modeled after the Garden of Eden. Just like the Garden of Eden, they had fruit carved into the walls and trees in their designs. There was lampstands for beautiful light and tables for food. There was even the Ark of the Covenant where God sat 
the temple, the tabernacle, was designed to be just like Eden. Now, if you've ever been to a temple, maybe a Buddhist or a Hindu temple, or uh, maybe even gone through a Shinto arch, you might know something about what happens inside a temple. Maybe you've been to the Middle East. Maybe you've seen uh, ruins of ancient temples. When you go into a temple, you experience something that's necessary to temples, but missing from Eden and missing from the temple of God. Every temple is full of images. Not just pictures, not just like nice pictures, but images of God's or God and of people. We call or think of in the West, we think of most of these images as idols, but they're meant to be pictures of a God or gods so that people could encounter the gods here on earth. But for all the detail in designing the temple and in creating the world, God doesn't put any images of God in the temple or in Eden. Well, except for one. In creation, God says, let us make humanity in our image. Eden, the first temple, was actually full of the image of God. There was people there who were made in God's image. They were God's images. They were living, breathing, and loving images of God that lived in God's temple with him. But they refused to be God's images. They wanted to represent themselves and serve themselves. So how could they be in God's temple? How could God say, these are my images, these are the people who look like me, when the people said, oh no, we want to make a name for ourselves. We want to look different. You see, the problem with sin is that the images of God stopped looking like God and started trying to look like someone or something else. We refuse to look like God and we refuse to be a part of God's kingdom. So God removed his images from his temple, from Eden. God separated his images from himself and separated himself from his images. And he worked from a limited place, a place of love and care to conquer human hearts once again. Matthew, if you remember, is writing to the Jews, to the Old Testament people of God. And he tells, them that Matt, tells the Jews that Jesus is not only the son or the descendant of Israel, of David, and of the exile, all very important temple uh, connections, but also that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus was fully human, but also the perfect image of God. Put another way, Jesus was a better temple than the tabernacle or the temple building itself. And Jesus says as much during his life. He says to the Jewish leaders, or actually he's accused of saying to the Jewish leaders, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then, in Jesus' death, not only is Jesus' body uh, killed, but God does destroy the temple. 
The whole purpose of the temple was the curtain. The whole purpose of the temple was to separate and keep God's presence from God's people and God's people at distance from God's presence. And so when the temple curtain is torn in two, the temple is destroyed. The temple has no more use. But the temple of Jesus is rebuilt in three days, just as he said. So what does this mean? Well, some people have concluded that this means that now people could access God again. In other words, some people mean that the holy place or the Ark of the Covenant, God's mercy seat, could be seen again and viewed again and accessed again by other people. And while that's technically true, that the curtain was torn, it's not actually realistic. You saw in that first picture of the temple that in Jesus' day there was an additional wall and door separating the temple from the inner court, which was only for men, for Jewish men, And then there was an additional wall and and, uh, doors separating a further court for women and a further court for Jews, and then an additional wall and doors for the rest of the world outside of the temple. So if the temple curtain being torn in two only means that people can come and access God again, this is sadly a very weak effect of Jesus' death. His His resurrection might have Very little or almost no relevance for us. After all, no one has found the Garden of Eden again. We can't go back there. More than that, the most holy place, as I said, wasn't just protected by those additional walls and doors and and additional Jewish people in the way who would not let somebody like me in. The entire temple itself was destroyed about 40 years later. If you, if you or I or anyone were to try and go there today, you would find a mosque, not the temple, not the most holy place, not the Ark of the Covenant. So if the temple curtain torn in half meant that people, even all people, could now encounter God in that place, well, that was only possible for 40 years, and even then, it was only possible for a few people. It makes no difference to us. Maybe I can put it another way for us today in 2023. If the only place, if the only place that you can find God is in a box, then you are not really encountering God. If the only place that you can find God is in a box at certain times or certain days or a certain place, then you're not really encountering God. If your God is so small that he can be contained in one place and fit one set of rules, that is not the God of the whole universe. That is not the creator and sustainer of the whole world. God remains so big and so glorious that when we do encounter him, we cannot take all of him in. We cannot understand all of him. We cannot meet him in full. But we do get to see him in part. Let's not keep God in a box. This is what people have always tried to do. Even David, who wanted to build the temple for God. God said to David, Will you build a house for me? In other words, David, do you really think that you can do that? 
Do you really think, David, that you will be able to limit me in one place? The answer is obvious. That we cannot, people cannot contain or control God. God says to David, will you build a house for me? And then a few verses later, he says, no. I will build a house for you. I will establish you and your descendants after you and your kingdom after you. You will not build a house for me. God says, I will build a house for you. I am in control, God says. When Jesus died and was raised to new life, God made to clear to his people then and 2,000, 2000 years after David, he said the same thing. You cannot contain me in a house. I will build a house for you. I will build a legacy for you. I am in control. Let's remember again what those words from Matthew that we read. At that moment, the moment of Jesus' death, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection, following Jesus' lead, as it were. And they went into the holy city and they appeared to many people. If it wasn't that people could get into the temple and into the most holy place, what happened when the temple curtain was torn in two? What's the title of my sermon? God breaks, and I'm going to add a word here, God breaks out into everyday life. That's right. Matthew is showing his Jewish readers 2,000 years ago that God's presence and God's power came out from the temple. It animated his images once again. Even people who were dead came back to life because they were filled with the presence of God. The purpose of an image, as I said earlier, at a temple, at any temple, the purpose of an image is that people could have an encounter with God. When people in Jerusalem saw those holy people, they encountered God because they encountered people who were filled with God's power, who were animated, brought back to life by God's presence. This was inside the holy city, Matthew tells us. And then after that comes probably the most popular or famous verse in Matthew, Matthew 28. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. And so he sends them first, sends his disciples first to Jerusalem, the holy city, then to Judea, which is the province or the area around the city, then to Samaria, which is the next province over, and then to the ends of the earth. Beginning at the resurrection of Jesus, God's presence was spread over the whole earth. And the Bible pictures this taking months, even years. Encounter, it takes this long because encountering God is a personal thing and it's an ongoing thing. Frankly, it's still ongoing. God's presence and God's kingdom being spread over all the earth because it's a personal and an ongoing thing takes time. In the same way that for each of us, the problems that we solve in our life, or excuse me, the problems that we create in our life we often get into month over month and year over year. When finally we realize that there's a problem, we want to solve it right away. 
But that's often not how it works. Not because that's not how God works. Or not how God can work. It doesn't work that way because it's not how we work. It takes time for our hearts, for our habits, for our lives to be changed. And so God takes the time, years and years, decades, even centuries, to continue to spread his presence and his kingdom all over the earth. Matthew shows us the start. How Jesus' death and resurrection began to change everything about our broken world. How Jesus, this perfect image of God, was a better temple than the temple building itself. Jesus was filled with God's glory, with God's power. Wherever Jesus went, God's presence went with him. God's kingdom went with him. And when Jesus died and the temple curtain was torn, God's image returned to God's people. And the power and presence of God spilled out of the temple into Jerusalem, into the rest of the world, into everyday life. When Jesus died, God's kingdom invaded all the kingdoms of the world. Now, brothers and sisters, God's goal was nothing as small as political power. Jesus makes that clear. His kingdom is not of this world, he says. God's goal wasn't to, to rule or to reign one, uh, one province or one country. God's goal was to conquer every human heart. Now, if and when we want to encounter God, we don't need to make a pilgrimage to some place. We need to meet with and be with other image bearers of God. God is with them and in them. His kingdom is within us and among us. And if you're part of God's family, then God's presence is with you and within you. What an amazing thing that is. This is why the church is so important. Not the institution and not the building, but the people. The institution and the building hope us, hopefully help us be the people that God call us to be. God calls us to be. Because when we call ourselves a part of the family of God, when we call ourselves a part of the church, we're saying that we want to image God. We want to look like Jesus and act like him. And when we're baptized, when we become members of the church, God says that he is in us, that he is with us, that he is returning us to the way that we are supposed to be, and that through us, he's returning others and the whole world to the way that it is supposed to be. Can you believe it? God's presence and God's kingdom are with God's people. Not just with other people in general, but with you. Wherever you go. Whatever you do. This is why the New Testament writers call our bodies, our very physical bodies, they get bruises and bumps. Temples of God. Temples of the living God. And why the New Testament writers call God's people from every ethnicity, every country around the world, one holy nation. Because God is among his people. God is with his people. God's kingdom is within us. Since Jesus' resurrection, God's power and God's kingdom have been turning death into life. 
turning sorrow into joy, turning despair into hope. Apart from God, these things seem like miracles. They seem impossible. But they're actually a restoration of what the image of God is supposed to look like in us. Through Jesus, God has restored his image to his people and spread his kingdom all over the world. To meet with God and encounter God is the most powerful and transformative experience of your life, of anyone's life. It's the ultimate thing that all of us are searching for. Relationship connection with others and relationship connection with God. Because of Jesus' resurrection, the words of C.S. Lewis, writing 1950 years later, are true. He says, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked with a mere mortal. Nations, culture, arts, civilizations, these things are mortal, and their life is to our life as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, either immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This doesn't mean that we are supposed to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our Our merriment must be of that kind, and in fact is the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. If you want to encounter God, you must take seriously the image of God in other people. No flippancy, no superiority. No presumption. Excuse me. Because when you encounter the people of God, you are encountering God. You're in this room with people who image God, who show you some part of God Himself. And you who are in this room, you image God as well. You show some part of God to others gathered here, to others in your home, in your work, to your neighbors, to your family. Other people can look at you and see God in part. That's happening to us in all these situations. We simply need to see with new eyes, as Mary saw on Easter morning, so that we can see God in us and God's kingdom among us. This is where we're heading in the next few weeks. But it's enough for today, so let's come to God in prayer as we close our time together. Thank you, God, that you have restored your image to your people. And thank you that you never took it away, but that even though we rejected it and wanted to go our own way, that you have given it back. Thank you that you love us the way a a good parent does, the way a perfect parent does. You give us everything we need, even if it's not always what we want. God, we ask this morning that you would give us the things we need. Keep us from running after or worrying about the things that we want or the things in this world that 
are outside of our control. Give us hearts to understand, eyes to see and ears to hear that you have given us yourself. That you have filled us with your presence and your power and that through us you are bringing your kingdom, your glory to bear on our broken world. What an honor, what a joy it is for us. And so we are humbled and we say thank you. Not because we are worthy of it, but in Jesus' precious name. Amen.